Remember back in March when the pandemic turned our lives upside down? People started getting sick. Things were shutting down. Milk, toilet paper, and Lysol wipes were all being rationed at grocery stores. It was scary and disorienting. So here at The Journal, we started talking to people across the country to understand how the pandemic was changing their lives. We talked to Erin, who was weighing getting a paycheck against her family's safety. The day before the shutdown, I literally was crying in the back alley behind work because I was scared. I didn't know what to do because I have to go home every day to my kids. We spoke with Camicia, who was facing eviction for the first time in her life. If it can happen to a person who made comfortable money, it can happen to anybody. It's humiliating and it's degrading for a lot of people. We spoke with Magda, a small business owner, navigating the losses caused by lockdown. What does that mean? Everyone is worried about how we're going to survive. It's been months since those first conversations. And so we decided to call back some of the people we spoke with to hear how they're coping. The way their lives have changed paints a picture of a new normal. The shock of the initial shutdowns is over, but the uncertainty remains. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Friday, September 25th. Coming up on the show, how five people across the country are getting by six months into the pandemic. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with GlobalX ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. One of the first people we spoke to in those early days of the pandemic was a restaurant owner named Magda Sayeg. Magda has a Middle Eastern restaurant in Brooklyn. She borrowed money to get it started, hired a full staff, and after months of preparation, she was excited to actually open her doors to the neighborhood, which she did in February, to a full house. But like thousands of restaurants and small businesses around the country, Magda had to close her doors in March. And last week, we called Magda to see if her restaurant, Magdalene, had survived. I am excited to say I'm pushing through. Magda says takeout food helps save her restaurant. But pivoting to takeout involves some big changes. I opened this place thinking that it was going to be like a Lebanese oyster bar with craft cocktails. None of that could actually be to go. Like everything that, that this chic, cute little Williamsburg restaurant that I planned to have needed to be like everyone's favorite takeout. So that transition was, was really stressful, but also it was kind of a fun challenge. Magda had to rework her menu. Oysters were out. Comfort food was in. And she hit on a quarantine bestseller. Like, I'm apparently known for this falafel fried chicken. Everyone loves the falafel fried chicken. But Magda missed having customers in her restaurant, seeing them share a meal with friends and enjoy her food. 
Then in June, New York City started to allow outdoor dining. I do actually remember our first outdoor dining Saturday night because I think that the energy was not only felt on the, the restaurant side, it was felt on the customer side. People were ready, ready to get out, you know? Everybody was happy. It was like being in the desert, starved of water, and then you see an oasis. It felt very well needed, mentally, emotionally. Just seeing even a few people sitting down, it felt like that first dollar bill that you frame, you know, all over again. New York City will allow indoor dining again next week at 25% capacity. That means Magda can finally reopen her dining room. But she's still decided to hold on to her takeout business. I don't expect everyone to want to dine indoors. In fact, I'm splitting my restaurant into two businesses. The front of the house will be that elegant, chic restaurant that I, you know, wanted to open many months ago. But the back, there's a separate entrance and there's a window that could be a coffee window. I really do believe that takeaway is not going to go away for a while. I think we will make it. I am in the business of hospitality, and I want to make people happy. That's what's so cool about this industry. You see people at their happiest, sharing laughter and conversations with people they love or, or like. And, and I get to be a part of that, and I feel so lucky. And so right now, with the bright yellow tables that I decided to get and the black and white striped umbrellas, I feel like my restaurant looks like a happy corner. I see a future, and so, heck yeah, I'm going to try to make this last as long as I can, you know? At 41 years old, I've worked since I was probably 17. I've never been without a job. I was never without a means to pay my rent. Everything that's happened has happened during the pandemic. Camisia Mitchell lives in Houston, Texas. Before the pandemic, she juggled a bunch of jobs, including food delivery for Uber. But as cases started to tick up, she lost work. She got behind on rent three months' worth, and her landlord moved to evict her from the apartment she's lived in for 14 years. When Ryan interviewed her back in July, Camicia was in the middle of appealing her eviction case. If you do have to leave, what is it going to feel like to leave this place that you've lived in for so long? Well, it'll be humiliation. Humiliation is a natural human response. So it, it will be humiliation, but then I have to get over it and just do whatever needs to be done. Last week, we called Camisia back to see if she was still in her apartment. I'm grateful. I'm still here in the unit. Camisia has been fighting the eviction case and started paying rent again with her family's help. She said she was back in eviction court last week, which, because of the pandemic, has turned into Zoom court. It's really weird. It's, it's weird because, you one, you want to make sure that you leave it on mute and you don't accidentally interrupt anything. And everybody's home from school or work. So there are children out playing, there are lawn service people, so it's noise. So it's like I'm running from the noise to stay, you know, in respect to the courts. Because you still have, if I were in court, I'd have to be quiet and dressed and, you know, in the same manner. So I have to be respectful and punctual. In that Zoom court hearing, Camisia's lawyer told the judge that she's eligible for rental assistance. But they needed more time for it to come through. The judge granted her the time. So we now have a continuation. The continuation doesn't mean that Camisia is saved from eviction, but it gives her time to apply for rental assistance from a community development program. She finalized her application this week, and she's remaining optimistic. 
I'm actually leaving in God's hands. I'm praying that what is for me is for me. And based on the fact that it is a dire need, I am praying that I'm one of the people that gets it. Nancy Miller lives on a Wisconsin dairy farm with her husband and nearly a thousand cows. Back in April, she was far from the coastal hotspots of the virus. But the virus did come to her farm in a totally different way. I mean, I was shocked. I was just shocked. For the first time in her 26 years of dairy farming, the guy who picks up her milk refused to take it. And they said, yeah, we have no place for this milk. How much milk was it? It was 56,000 pounds. How much is that? I can't even imagine it. That's like 6,000 gallons. Nancy had to dump 6,000 gallons of milk into a manure pit on her property. Her milk sat spoiling in the pit because the restaurants, schools, and hotels that normally bought dairy products were all closed. There was nowhere for Nancy's milk to go. Around the country, farms were dealing with similar problems. And that left farmers, like Nancy, devastated. My husband summed it up like this. He said, I can't imagine what God is thinking when he sees milk going into a manure pit. And people are starving all over our world. It was heartbreaking. Now, months later, parts of the economy are back up and running. So I called Nancy to see how her farm is doing. Last time we spoke, it was in April. And at that time... You said you were dumping gallons and gallons of milk. Correct. Is that still happening? That is not happening anymore. And in fact, we only had a dump in April. So we haven't dumped since then, and I don't believe anybody is dumping anymore. Well, that's good news. That is good. Yeah, is business back to normal then? No. (laughs) I mean, the milkman is coming, milk is going. It's getting sent to the stores or restaurants or wherever it needs to go. But... I don't know that we'll get back to normal. Things on Nancy's farm have changed significantly. And a lot of that has to do with some decisions she and her husband, Mark, had to make in the early days of the pandemic, when demand for milk plummeted. So we got rid of cows to put less milk out onto the market. We ship them to a processing plant for hamburger. And those cows normally bring... $1,100 or, you know, somewhere in that area. Well, because the processing plants couldn't get their stuff to market because of the COVID issues, we were getting like $300 for some of those cows. Oh, wow. So taking a big loss on them. Nancy told me she was feeling more than ever that it might be time to get out of farming. But her husband, Mark, wasn't on board. When he saw demand for milk starting to tick back up, he decided to lean in. He waits till I leave the farm. I just happened to be gone for the day, and he called and he goes, I bought 20 more cows, and I was at a place where I couldn't really talk, and I'm like, what? And I said to Mark, why are you getting more cows? His motto that he lives by is, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. And he says that to me often. And how many years have you been married? It'll be 39 in November. (laughs) And that's a lot of uh, forgiveness. forgiveness. Yeah. (laughs) Nancy was upset because they needed to borrow money for the cows. Plus, she's worried if more shutdowns happen this winter, 
milk prices might fall again. We don't know, like this winter, are all the restaurants going to be open in the winter? Because like our cheese and stuff goes all over the country. So if restaurants in New York aren't open, that affects us. And it's a vicious cycle. It seems like this moment that happened in April when you had to dump the milk has left an enduring kind of scar. It did. It left a cloud over us, I guess. Just a sadness. And we're getting to the point of, why are we doing this? The vicious loop that Nancy and her farm are trying to survive has hit farms across America. Many are closing, including in Nancy's state. 266 more farms closed in Wisconsin. This year, we're down under 7,000 farms. It's just, it's sad. It's just harder now. It really is. I guess the thing that keeps Mark going, and me too, is really that we are doing something that is benefiting other people. We are feeding other people. And Mark says that a lot. Somebody has to feed the people. Coming up, a mom of three tries to work her way back to financial security. And a cellist shares a pandemic soundtrack. Courage. I learned it from my adoptive mom. Hold my hand. You hold my hand. Learn about adopting a team from foster care at AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by AdoptUSKids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Millions of people have lost their jobs over the past six months. And one of them was Erin Lee. She's a single mom with three teenagers, and they live outside of Flint, Michigan. When we spoke with Erin, she was getting state unemployment benefits plus an extra $600 a week from the federal government. She told us what it was like when that money first hit her bank account. I might have did a little happy dance. I think my kids laughed at me. That was, I think, the most joyous moment that I'd had was just the feeling of I can call and catch up on my bills and go to the grocery store. That was, as silly as it sounds, an amazing feeling. The $600 benefit helped Erin and her family make ends meet, but it expired at the end of July, and Erin is still out of work. So two months later, we asked Erin how much she's now living on each week. $285. It's you and three kids? Mm Mm-hmm. How does that money get you through a week? Oh, well, it's obviously isn't even close to being enough. My bank account's depleting right now, just like a lot of people's. It's kind of frustrating as a parent, you know, when your kids come to you and they ask for reasonable things, kind of way on the scale of one to 10, how important it might be. I'm looking at how... Like, fast my son's growing. I'm like, I think I can wait just a little while longer to get you some clothes. And then there's other expenses that I didn't really think about that are actually kind of costly, I guess. You know, somebody broke their computer and they needed another one. And I'm like, you know what I mean? Like, stuff like that. So it's like those unexpected things that kind of keep me up at night. Erin would like to get back to her work as a chef but she's afraid of going back to the restaurant world. She worries about bringing COVID home to her kids, one of whom is immunocompromised. So she's been thinking about other ways to make money. 
there's a a little market in the city that I live in and they are renting out space. And I was able to secure one of those. So I am going to be doing cast iron artisan breads and organic herbed infused cooking oils. Wow. Yeah. You know, I've never broken out and went into business for myself. There's a lot of things that I'm going to need to figure out coming up here real quick, but I'm kind of excited about it. I mean, it's, it could be very good for me if I can pull it off. <laughs> but if she can't pull it off, Erin will have to start making some bigger changes. If it comes down to it, I will, I'll have to sell the house and think about something else. And that's like worst case scenario that I don't even want to get to, so. That's what I'm trying to stay away from right now. Samile Kudo is a cellist in the New York Philharmonic. And when we talked with her back in March, her work had just changed significantly. Instead of playing on stage for hundreds of other people, she was holed up at home playing on her own. When we called her up again last week, Samile said she was still missing her fellow musicians and a live audience. You know, live music, you never know what's going to happen. You might think that we're on stage and we're just playing music, but then we are paying attention to audience also. Like, you know, we're checking them out. (laughs) (laughs) And especially, like, when we are really feeling something strongly and audience feel the same way and that's just a experience that you have it's very special but for one weekend this summer sumile was able to relive that special feeling the philharmonic got a handful of musicians together and they drove around the city playing spontaneous concerts on the sidewalk we just drive through New York City and find a spot and kind of unannounced set ourselves and just play. One of the pieces they played was a new one, commissioned by the Philharmonic. The name of the piece is Loop. Can you hum it for us? Yeah. Yeah. You want to hear yeah. it? <laughs> oh, it's called, uh, it goes like the... very um, rhythmic and driven. It was a fun piece, actually. The composer of this piece is a man named Carlos Simon. He wrote the piece based on how he was feeling about the mundane routine of being in lockdown from COVID. During the pandemic, he would just get up and he would just repeat so many things every day just to get going and how he felt very repetitive, but it's just, that's the way to get through the day. The first performance, it was in Brooklyn, and people on the street were just so shocked <laughs> that we came, <laughs> came around, and it was just, I couldn't believe how quiet it got on the street. People just, like, couldn't breathe, basically. <laughs> what was it like for you to play with other musicians again, finally. 
Oh, <laughs> that was great. I felt like at home, basically. Yeah, like I felt like my senses really came back and I felt really alive. That's all for today, Friday, September 25th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Ryan Knudsen and me, Kate Leinbaugh. The show's made by Katherine Brewer, Gerard Cole, Pia Godkari, Annie Minoff, Afif Nasuli, Ricky Novetsky, Caitlin O'Keefe, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Annie Rose Strasser, and Rob Zipko. Our show is engineered by Griffin Tanner and Nathan Singapak. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Katherine Anderson, Bobby Lord, Peter Leonard, Emma Munger, and Blue Dot Sessions. Loop was composed by Carlos Simon, and the recording in today's episode is courtesy of the New York Philharmonic. You also heard Sumile Kudo play part of the first movement of Sonata No. 10 in G Major by the composer Jean-Baptiste Barrier. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka. Thanks for listening. See you Monday.